We have a big task ahead. But is our God bigger? That's a yes. Isn't our God bigger? Right? All right. All right. Welcome. Uh, my name is Jason. I'm the outreach director here at, uh, at LBC. If you're new with us this morning, we'd love the opportunity to get to know you, uh, to meet you. If you go out in the courtyard and then hang a right, you'll see a striped umbrella. That's our welcome kiosk, and we'd love to uh, give you some more information and give you a little gift to say thanks for visiting. Um, this morning is Reach the Nations, and it's our focus on um, the task of reaching those that don't even have access to the gospel like we do. Um, after service, we'd like to invite you to stop by the tables out in the courtyard. You can get some more information on global outreach and uh, learn how you can partner with us as uh, we work on fulfilling the Great Commission uh, from our Lord. And make sure to grab some chai and pastries out there. So we've got uh, a little snack for you to work on while you're fellowshipping. Um, this morning, we're featuring some of our missionaries, like in the cafe, we've got a slideshow. Um, you might see some stuff on the tables over there that um, they're serving in closed countries. And uh, we just ask that you wouldn't post anything. That's, it's intended to stay on campus. Uh, don't post anything online and just watch if you're taking pictures, not to you know have their picture in the background, uh, just to keep them safe, if you would, please. Um, and before I go on, I'd like to welcome, we've got some guests here today, Pat and Kai Murphy. Could you guys just stand and wave real quick? They are, yes, thank you. Thank you guys for coming this morning. They're with Living Grace Bible Church, um, and we've partnered with them. They're, uh, they're waiting. To, they've got some medical things that they're getting taken care of. Uh, they went to Papua New Guinea and had to come back to get some medical treatment, but they're waiting to head back. So make sure you stop by and say hi to them and, and uh, get to know them and, and give them some love. So we're glad you guys are here. Thanks for coming. Um, for those that may not know, we actually have a campus library, and um, I know there's not much signage for it, but it's out by the cafe. It's on this side of it. It's adjacent to the cafe. And we've got some books out there um, on a rack that are featured that are featured for missions. Um, but feel free to go into the, the library and check out some books and take advantage of the resources. So uh, we plan to send short-term teams this year, thank God, and to support, our, uh, support and serve our national partners in other countries. And so I'd like to challenge you to apply for one of those and see where God might lead you. We'll be going to, uh, to Kenya, Romania, and India, and India is going to be in October. So you can get some more information out at the tables and the applications are sitting out there. Um, and then next Sunday after services, we'll have a, an informational meeting on A105. So our guest speaker this morning is with a mission, uh, missionary organization called ABWE. And he's the co-host of the Missions Podcast, and he's uh, co-authored a book with our Bakersfield's own Chad Vegas called Missions by the Book. Um, if you could please welcome with me Alex Kochman as he brings the word this morning. Good morning. Well, I warned the first service that while you were all losing an hour, I came from the East Coast yesterday, I got two hours. So buckle up. 
Let's get ready to go. We're going to be in Romans chapter 15 this morning, starting in verse 17. And we want to paint the whole picture of what the Apostle Paul is communicating to us with regard to this topic before we get to that text. First, just some words of encouragement. This has been a wonderful church to visit. It's been a joy and a privilege to get to know a few of you, to meet with a few leaders of the church last night. So thank you, especially to Jason, and thank you to Eric and to the others, to John, to some of those who I've been able to interact with. Uh, You're all so happy. You're so joyful. I don't know if you know that about yourselves, but compared to other churches that I've seen, trust me, you have that going for you. So be encouraged. And you care about the work of mission as well. The trips that Jason mentioned, the Market of Hope ministry, the work in Kenya through this about people, so many incredible things happening here. I am someone, though, who is probably the worst person to give some sort of a heavy-handed recruitment speech. So if you're coming to Reach the Nation Sunday and you're concerned, what am I going to be asked to do? What am I going to be asked to give to? I simply want us to come to the Word and ask, how can we conform our lives to its teaching? My background is as someone that works for the agency, ABWE, Association of Baptists for World Evangelism. Previous to that, I was in student ministry. I'm an elder in our church. I'm a a normal churchman like you. And so the goal is simply not to to come in with with a, a, a sales pitch, but to open up the text of Scripture. So let's do that now. Romans chapter 15. Verse 17, we'll begin. This is the word of the Lord from the Apostle Paul through the Holy Spirit. In Christ Jesus, then, I have reason to be proud of my work for God. For I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience by word and deed, by the signs, by the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God, So that from Jerusalem all the way around to Illyricum, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. And thus, I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation. But as it is written, those who have never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard will understand. Join me in prayer. Lord, as we come into your word, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And your word does not return void for the purpose for which you send it out. And so we pray that you'd give us eyes to see, ears to hear this text this morning. We pray that your spirit would speak to the church and help us to listen with the intent to believe and to obey. And we'll give you all the glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, how many of you enjoy walking in on a movie that's already in the third act? Me neither. And neither do I enjoy just jumping in to the Apostle Paul's letter to the Romans 90% through that letter. And so I owe you a little bit of context. So let's explore the context of this book here. Romans is the closest thing that we have to a systematic gospel doctrinal treatise in Scripture. So Paul's climbed the mountain heights. He's plunged the depths of the doctrines of grace. In the first two chapters, he unfolds the problem of sin for Jew and Gentile alike. In chapters three and four, 
He wonders, he glories in the cross, and he defends justification by grace through faith alone in Jesus Christ. In chapter 5, he contrasts the new humanity in Christ with the old humanity in Adam. In chapters 6 through 8, he wrestles with law and grace and the interplay and life in the Spirit. In chapters 9 to 11, he wrestles with the mysteries of the doctrine of election and what that means. And then in chapters 12 through 14, he deals with Christian service and liberty in light of our freedom in Christ. We love this book. It's an incredible book. What we often forget, though, is that this book comes to us sandwiched inside of a missionary support letter. So show of hands, how many of you receive emails or newsletters from missionaries that you give to? A number of us do. Some of them are gripping. You'll never guess who got saved this week, right? You'll never guess what happened in this village or in this remote place. Some of them are a bit more ordinary. Timmy got his braces out this week. Keep praying for us as we submit for medical reimbursement. Well, this missionary support letter, though, is chocked full of richness and beauty. And how do we know it's a missionary support letter? Well, the two bookends that we see here, starting in chapter one, Paul introduces himself saying that he's received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations. It's right there in the introduction, this idea of the obedience of faith, believing obedience for the sake of Christ's name among all the nations, all the peoples. He says he wants to visit the church in Rome in, in verse 10 of chapter 1, but he can't because he has more of this work to do among the Gentiles first. Then in chapter 15, where we're about to see, he implies that the Roman church should, should support him on his way to Spain. So it's a missionary support letter, and he concludes the book with this doxology, chapter 16, verse 26. He refers to the gospel that has been made known to all nations according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith. It's the same idea of the obedience of faith. Paul's concerned that the nations would believe. Paul's concerned that the nations would obey Christ as Lord as well. So as we come to this text this morning, is that our concern? Don't we want our nation to obey Jesus? And if we do, how much more should we want all of the nations to obey the Lord Jesus Christ? The Apostle Paul wants us to be swept up in this. And we know that it's sure to happen because we're told the outcome. Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 14, the Knowledge of the glory of the Lord will fill the earth as the waters cover the seas. Well, how much do the waters cover the sea? Completely. The whole world will be saturated with the gospel. It will come to pass. The question that we'll see answered in this passage is how Christ brings this about. And if you're a note taker, our thesis, our main point for this message this morning is simply this. How does Christ do it? Well, Christ secures the obedience of the nations for the sake of his name through his church's mission and through his servant's ambition. Again, our main theme for this message is that Christ secures the obedience 
of the nations for the sake of his name through the church's mission and his servant's ambition. To see this, we'll look at our mission, we'll look at our ambition, and we'll look at our action. And we're focusing on Paul's unique calling, but we'll see how Paul's unique ministry played into the overarching plan of God, and it actually plays into God's plan for us here in this room today. So first, understanding this statement, because of our obligation, we have a mission. Again, our first point is that because we have an obligation, we in turn have a mission. So I noted that Romans has missions bookends. So chapter one, again, setting the stage, and feel free to turn there with me. Paul says this in Romans 1, starting in verse 13. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I've been often that I've often intended to come to you, but thus far I've been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles or nations. Wherever you see the word Gentiles in the New Testament, remember the word nations is what's underneath of that. Verse 14, I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and the foolish. So I'm eager to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome. And he goes on, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes, to the Jew first and to the Greek. So Paul was an apostle to the nations, chapter 11, verse 13 tells us, or an apostle to the Gentiles, the Greeks, those who were civilized, and the barbarians, which was everyone outside of the Greco-Roman civilized world. In fact, the word barbaroi, from which we get barbarians, was something of an onomatopoeia, right? A word that sounds like what it is. Because to a Greek speaker, it sounded like these people were just saying bar, 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 bar. That's what their speech sounded like. It sounded foreign. So they were the barbaroi, the barbarians. Educated, uneducated. Wise, foolish, civilized, uncivilized. Western, Eastern, black, white. There's one gospel for all of them, Paul says. All can be saved. Right? There's not multiple ways of doing this for multiple classes and groups of people. All are called without distinction to repent of their sins and to believe on Christ for salvation. So Paul wasn't able to visit Rome yet. He still had more of this work to do. He owed more peoples this gospel. And by analogy, we are not apostles. We do not have a personal face-to-face calling from the Lord Jesus, the way the Apostle Paul did, where he was commissioned to the Gentile nations. But we do still also have an obligation of our own as Christians. David Platt has succinctly said, those who own the gospel owe the gospel. If you have the gospel, you owe it. To others. You may ask why. Hopefully we know, but just so we're clear, we have this obligation first because of the fame of Christ. See, our hearts should soar when we read that he died to redeem a people from every nation, tribe, and tongue, Revelation 5.9 and 7.9, that when he rose, he had all authority on heaven and on earth, and he said, therefore go, in Matthew 28, and disciple the nations. Psalm 2 gives us this picture of Christ ascending to the right hand of the Father, and the Father says to him, Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, the ends of the earth your possession. 
Jesus asked. Jesus took the Father up on that offer. And Daniel 7 tells us that he received from the Ancient of Days, the Son of Man ascends and receives this dominion and kingdom that will not pass away. He will have the prize for which he died. And Psalm 46 says this, I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. He is worthy. We should rejoice at that. We're obligated for the fame of Christ. Second, we're obligated because hell is real. Early in my marriage, I woke up in the middle of the night to see my wife weeping in the side of the bed next to me in the wee hours of the morning. This was before we had a lot of kids, before kids were crawling into bed with us. <laughs> Back then, we could sleep through the whole night in our beds alone. <laughs> and I asked her what she was crying for. She was crying for her family. See, I had the privilege, maybe some of you have as well, of growing up in a believing household with strong Christian parents who taught me truth from an early age. So I can't relate firsthand to the experience, by God's grace, my whole immediate family unit knows the Lord, of, of having a loved one, someone that raised me, who doesn't know the Lord, knowing that they'll spend eternity apart from Christ if they don't repent. My wife does not have that same background. And it haunted her at night to think that the people that she loved most in the world are condemned. They're under the wrath of God. Shouldn't love compel us for that reason alone? To take the gospel to those who don't yet know? And by the way, we are not universalists, brothers and sisters. We do not believe that in the end all will be saved. We're not inclusivists either. Someone that believes that all of the well-meaning non-Christians assuming they do enough good, are somehow also included in Christ's death on the cross for their sins. Because we believe that apart from hearing of Christ, there's no way to be saved. We are exclusivists. That's Paul's logic. Romans isn't just missions at the beginning and the end. It's missions in the middle, too, and all throughout. Romans 10, Paul says this, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Yes, the door is thrown wide open. All are invited. But how will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in whom of, him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Romans ten seventeen. so faith comes through hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Hearing of Christ is the only way to be saved. This is basic. This is not theology 400. This is 100 level. You cannot read Isaiah 66, Luke 16, Revelation 20, and conclude when you read of torment, weeping, gnashing of teeth, the undying worm, and a lake of fire, that hell is empty or that hell is a state of mind. It's neither of those things. 
It's real. So as the global body of Christ, just as Paul owed more of the peoples of the world this message as an apostle, so we too owe the world this gospel. But our question that we began with is how? We know it's sure to happen. How is it to be done? Short-term trips is one good option. Jason encouraged you to apply for one of those. Is it only that? Is it in sending people out from this church? Is it from dropping tracts from the sky? Is it through the power of the web, since so many people now, even in the developing world, have access to cellular networks? Well, Paul gives us in our text that we read to begin the service, Romans 15. You can turn back to Romans 15 now if you're following along. He gives us the answer to that. He gives us the how, his strategy, his rule. And we see that because of our mission, we need an ambition. Because of our mission, our second point is we need an ambition. That ambition that we'll read about, that's the how. It's a very particular thing that God uses in his plan to get the gospel out. Verse 16, this is the verse before the one we read to begin. Paul says that he's a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God, so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Well, what do priests do? They offer sacrifices. That's one thing that priests did under the Old Covenant. Not just any sacrifice. They would pick the best, the finest, a spotless lamb. They would go through the most rigorous rituals to make sure that they were giving God what he deserved. Paul says that he's enlisted in the priestly service of the gospel, giving to God not animal sacrifices, but people worshipers, living sacrifices, he says in chapter 12. In fact, this idea of priestly offerings of other peoples as worshipers to God comes from Isaiah 66, the final chapter of Isaiah 66, where God's people are scattered all over the world as witnesses. God says, now is the time to gather all the nations. And he says, some of the survivors of judgment even go as far as Tarshish, which is associated with Spain, which is where Paul is going in Romans 15. Paul sees Isaiah 66 fulfilled in his ministry and in his life. He, like one of these witnesses in Isaiah 66, is bringing the peoples to God as a priestly offering, as a sacrifice. Who do you want to give to God as an offering? Some of you will know the name Brad Buser, who's involved in Radius International, which Chad, uh, who I co-authored Missions by the Book with, Chad Vegas, Chad, you know, who pastors here in Bakersfield as well, co-founded Radius uh, with the Buser family. But Brad said once in a conversation something striking. He said that when he stands before the Lord, he wants to be able to say to the Lord, here is the Teddy people. He wants to present them to God as a gift, as an offering, as a sacrifice. That's the people group that he served among in Papua New Guinea. So too, he said he wants for his son, Brooks, who served among the MBMB people, to be able to say, here, Lord, here are the MBMB people. 
Well, who do you want to give to God in that way? Your children? You ought to. Don't give them to the world. Give them to the Lord. Your neighbors? Well, who else? Don't come empty-handed. So Paul's proud of this work. Verse 17, in Christ Jesus then, I have reason to be proud of my work for God. So not arrogantly, but in Christ. Verse 18, I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me. So this is Christ doing this to bring the Gentiles to obedience by word and deed. And he goes on about the signs and wonders that he undertook as an apostle. And he says, so that Verse 19, from Jerusalem all the way around to Illyricum, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. Well, if you're following along, you should be bothered by that. How can you say, Paul, that you've fulfilled the ministry of the gospel? You've completed it. All the way from Jerusalem, Palestine, Judea, to Illyricum is in the Balkans. Think Croatia, Albania, that region in Europe. We're not even sure Paul made it there personally. And he didn't spend that much time in Jerusalem either before he was persecuted and imprisoned. How can Paul say with so many millions of people lost and condemned between these two cities that he's fulfilled the ministry of the gospel? Did he personally evangelize each one? Well, let's think about what the strategy means. If you're someone who's into World War II history, or even if you just know the basics, think of the D-Day invasion at Normandy. Actually, I was always told growing up that my great uncle, Uncle Al, that he was there in Normandy that day. I thought, man, that's cool. What a legacy for our family. What a heroic act. Uncle Al was a man's man. When my grandfather died, he said, I'll, I'll, be, I'll be that fatherly figure to you. That was the kind of man that he was. Always looked up to him. About two weeks ago, I learned that he was supposed to be storming the beach at Normandy. And then he got appendicitis. He was actually in the hospital <laughs> that day when everyone else was storming the beach. So providentially, he survived, but not the way I thought he did. There's no bigger point to that story. It's just kind of a funny story. So much for that family legacy, right? So forget Uncle Al. But think about D-Day. Think about D-Day, those who actually fought there. What made that effective? Is it that they took all of France that day? No. What did they accomplish in storming the beach at Normandy? They set up a beachhead, a strategic inflection point from which ground forces could advance. It was that breach that did it. And Paul's strategy was to form gospel beachheads across the Roman world, from Jerusalem to Illyricum. Luke tells us this strategy in Acts chapter 14. He outlines it for us. I'll narrate that for you. You don't have to turn there, but it's Acts 14, verses 21 through 23, if you're curious. First thing that he did, Paul preached the gospel and made many disciples in these places. Second, he returned, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith. And then third, he appointed elders for them in every place, 
in every church with prayer and fasting, he committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. So he preaches the gospel, he strengthens them, he disciples them, and then gathers them into a church and appoints biblical eldership over them to lead them. And the strategy worked. Paul says, I'm proud of what Christ has done through me. These beachheads are now there all across the Roman world so that they can be effective mission outposts evangelizing even after Paul is long gone. By the way, that's the job of a church, not just the job of a missionary. A missionary's job is to get it started. The church's job is to continue the task. And so Paul elaborates his motive for doing all of this. Verse 20, and thus I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named. We're so used to hearing of ambition as a negative thing. You don't want to be too ambitious. You want to be humble. But this is an earnest, sincere passion and desire. And some of you may be wondering on a day like today, am I called in some way to be a missionary? Well, whatever it means to have a missionary call, part of that is ambition. Is there a desire that you have? a peculiar passion that you just can't let go of for the Lord, a nagging and a gnawing at you, a discontentment. Don't get me wrong. Sometimes God asks us to do things that we don't necessarily want to do, but he uses our passions, our desires for him. When Paul writes to the church in Thessalonica, Thessalonica, in 2 Thessalonians, he says, we pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling and fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power. Every resolve for good. So as you're making resolutions to yourself, things that I want my life to matter for, things that I want to do for the Lord so that I don't stand before him empty-handed, Paul prays that God would bless those desires. God gives you a desire He'll use it. Maybe not the way that you think. Your plans may not necessarily come to pass. The Lord orders the steps. But none of that is wasted in God's economy. Paul makes it his ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named. So not where the Jews knew the Messiah was coming. And not even just where the civilized Gentiles might have heard from the Jews that something was about to happen. John Gill, the 18th century Baptist theologian, says that he went where as yet the sound of the gospel had not reached. Lest, Paul says in verse 20 again, I build on another man's foundation. So Paul loves construction metaphors. So if you're a handyman, if you're a person that works with their hands, this is for you. Christ says, I am building my church. And Paul riffs on that. In 1 Corinthians 3, he says, no other foundation can be laid except for Christ. So when Paul says he doesn't want to lay, he doesn't want to build on top of someone else's foundation, he's meaning that he doesn't want to go where someone else has already proclaimed Christ. Because the Great Commission, yes, it requires surveys, groundbreakers, foundation layers, framers, finishers, interior decorators, the whole building that Christ is building through his kingdom, his church, the whole structure has to be raised up. Not everyone is there at the groundbreaking. Not everyone is there to lay fresh slab. But someone has to, don't they? Someone has got to lay the foundation. Paul was unique. He was an apostle. And yes, the body of Christ needs 
those who aren't apostles, those who have gifts of helping and serving. It needs faithful members. It needs pastors who are laying on an existing foundation, ministering to people who are believers. It needs deacons doing acts of mercy, meeting physical needs. It needs stay-at-home mothers who are teaching their children in the truth day in, day out, catechizing them, training them up to fear the Lord. It needs shut-ins whose only ministry is to pray intensely, even if they can't make it to church on a Sunday. The body of Christ needs all of these types of people. But someone has got to be the foundation layer. Someone's got to be the one to put fresh boots on the ground. You might say that Paul had a startup mentality. You know, more people now than ever are starting side hustles. More than 50% of millennials, according to one survey that I saw, report to having a side hustle. Well, that's great. It's great to have initiative. It's great to do something for yourself and not just punch a clock and be a company person, but to build something, leave a legacy, do something original. That's good. It's a good desire. But where are those who want to apply that same startup mentality to the gospel ministry? Where are those who are not content to build on existing foundation? Just think how much duplication of efforts that we have in the church. One commentator, John Chrysostom in the fourth century, said here that Paul is saying here, he doesn't want to thrust himself upon another man's disciples. So he didn't want to claim credit where he hadn't done the work himself. Now, how many Christian leaders are there, sadly, who sell millions of copies of a book and who boast of all of their impact when everyone that picked up a copy of that book was already a believer before, and they're still a believer afterwards, right? How many churches grow and they expand, and they're doing so well with transfer growth from other churches? Don't get me wrong. Sometimes these are important and necessary ministries, but rather than thrusting himself upon another man's disciples, Chris Ostom says, Paul runs to where the labor is more and the toil is greater. He had the startup mentality. He wanted to lay the foundation. He wanted to be the first boots on the ground with the gospel. And here's the strategy, church. See, the global mission is not accomplished unless there are some people with this ambition. It's not everyone, but there need to be some or else churches won't start. The church where I serve was planted in 1914. None of us there today helped lay that foundation, but we stand on the shoulders of those giants. Somebody has to do the first thing. The people that planted that church were not the first gospel presence in our community, in York, Pennsylvania. The gospel already came to the Americas. Before that, the gospel came to Europe. Somebody has to go. Somebody has to lay the foundation. Verse 21, Paul appeals to the Old Testament, to the prophet Isaiah, as it is written, those who have never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard will understand. And if you read Isaiah, you know that blindness and deafness are a theme. 
In chapter 6, where Isaiah is called, he's told he's going to preach, but he's not going to be listened to because the people's hearts are going to be closed off. Ultimately, so that the Messiah would be crucified, God's people are hardened to the point where they reject Christ so that through their rejection of Christ, Christ would die and rise and the gospel can go to all of the world. But here, when Paul quotes from Isaiah 52, 15, it's as if Isaiah is saying, yes, some are blinded in the providence of God, but others who've never seen will get to see. Some are deaf, yes, but others who've never heard, they're going to get it. It's an incredible thing. Paul sees his ministry as a piece of this whole story that's spanning redemptive history. And that story doesn't stop in the first century with Paul. It continues today. We saw this briefly in the video that was played at the onset of the service. But let's think for a moment about the difference between the unsaved and the unreached, because there is one. My wife's family is unsaved, not unreached. Why? Well, because they're our family. They have us. We can reach out to them. We have. Your neighbors who don't know Christ, they're not unreached. Why? Because you're their neighbor. You're within reach of them. And they probably have a Bible on their shelf collecting dust. And they've probably visited the church maybe once or twice in their life. And they're one Google search away from knowing what they need to know in order to be saved, if they were so motivated. They have the means and the opportunity, just not the motive. But to be unreached, which, by the way, about a third of the planet is, between two and three billion people, to be unreached means there's no Bible that you could pick up and rifle through. There's no church nearby that you could visit. You have no Christian friend that you could ask. You've probably never heard of Jesus, or if you've heard of him, you've heard of him the same way a lot of us have heard of Confucius. Oh, yeah, he's some Eastern teacher that said some things. And there's probably no missionary that they could reach out to and answer questions either. They're outside of the reach of existing missionary labors. A friend of mine is a missionary in a South Asian country, an Islamic country. So I won't say his name. And he's a faithful evangelist. Every market, every morning he's going to the market. He's trying to start spiritual conversations. He's constantly being rejected. One day he sits down at a table, crowded table full of Muslim men having their coffee before they hurry off to work. And he starts a conversation with the person sitting next to him. And the man listens for a moment and then walks off. And at this point, he's been here for months doing this. He's discouraged, my friend is. But another man at the table says, hey, I heard what you were talking about. So tell me about that. And so he starts to present the gospel to this Muslim man. And as he explains the gospel, they get closer and closer until they're nose to nose, and they get quieter and quieter because they know they can't be heard. This is illegal. And finally, the man grabs him, grabs my friend, kind of holds him out here, and he says, people need to hear this. We want to hear this, but we're not allowed to ask. 
That's the experience of being unreached. Knowing that you're missing something. Knowing that your government is holding back some precious truth from you. Can you imagine such a thing? But imagine if the gospel was the truth that your government was holding back from you. You know you're missing something. You don't have it. Well, here's the beauty. Just as Jason said at the beginning, our God is bigger than this task, isn't he? We're told that Christ has redeemed already a people from every nation, tribe, and tongue. And we see them in the throne room in heaven. So we know they get there. If there's anything that God does not waste, it's a single precious drop of the blood of the Lamb, Jesus Christ. He will have the prize for which he died. He does so through the work of his people who understand their obligation means they have a mission, and their mission means that some of them at least need to have an ambition. And that ambition, our third and final point, drives us to action. Our ambition means we must action. So here it comes. It's Reach the Nation Sunday. Paul has just unfolded this whole beautiful plan of redemption, going to the Old Testament about those who've never seen, who've never heard. Now he's going to bring the guilt trip, right? Now he's going to lay it on thick. And Paul says, verse 24, I hope to see you as I go to Spain and to be helped on my journey there by you once I've enjoyed your company for a while. It's a little anticlimactic, isn't it? But what is Romans? Yes, it's a missionary prayer letter. It's also these beautiful doctrines of grace. It's the grace of God and it's the goodness of God wrapped up in everything that Paul has been saying. He's a realist. He knows not everyone is an apostle. So he makes a realistic appeal to them on the basis of the fame of Jesus for the glory of Jesus among all the nations as they believe, as they obey, for the sake of his name. Paul makes a very realistic appeal. Help. Help me get to Spain. And he picks Spain because in Isaiah 66, that's the ends of the earth. That's the plan of God, that this gospel is getting out everywhere. Paul says, help me get there. First, help by your company, he says. He had already said in chapter 1, that he wanted to be mutually encouraged by each other's faith. Chapter 1, verse 12. So he wants to be refreshed by their fellowship. Folks, I love being here. No offense. I'd rather be with my church because we have such precious fellowship. And listen, it's been a week. It's only been one week and I still miss them. I genuinely miss them. Well, how much does a missionary on the field miss that fellowship after years and years away? So when a missionary comes, don't treat them as other. Don't be afraid that they're going to recruit you for something. Talk to them. Invite them over for dinner. Take them out to lunch. Show hospitality. Paul wants to be helped by their company. He wants to be helped, second, by their prayer. In verse 30, I appeal to you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit to strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf. He prays that he would be delivered from unbelievers in Judea and so forth. Strive together with me in prayer. Wrestle in prayer. 
Missionaries, more than your money, they want your prayer. They need your prayer. So co-labor with them in prayer. Third, he wants their help by their support. Yeah, he's probably implying some sort of ask. He probably wants their financial support. He doesn't say so explicitly, but the Apostle John tells us in 3 John, a short book that packs a punch, you will do well to send them, missionaries, on their journey in a manner worthy of God, John says, for they have gone out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. They're not receiving any material support from unbelievers. Therefore, we ought to support people like these that we may be fellow workers for the truth. Fellow workers for the truth. You want to be a fellow missionary and worker for the truth? Well, give. Support the work of the gospel that you know that's going to the least reached. See, some of us need to have this ambition to go. And as we close, let me tell you briefly about a man named Les that I knew for a couple of years, met him once or twice. He was a missionary with ABWE. Les served in a Muslim country in South Asia where ABWE operates a hospital. And in this Muslim country, patients come, they hear the gospel, they're, they're healed of their maladies. We've been ministering in this country for decades now. And we have a presence, we're allowed to stay, even though it's an Islamic society, because we're meeting needs. It's a beautiful thing. And his job was as a facilities director there. His job was to keep the lights on. His job was to maintain the campus. He and his wife were doing other things as well. They're showing hospitality. They're ministering to other needs locally there. That's a worthy life. That's a good cause. That's a good ministry. He was doing incredible work very far away, the other side of the planet. He had left America behind the last 20 years. But about 10 years ago, he wasn't content even with that. He found a local pastor, learned a local dialect, started driving out to some faraway villages that weren't within reach of this large missionary team. He starts preaching the gospel. They start playing the Jesus film. They start distributing materials. They start distributing food and other supplies. Then they check back, just like Paul in Acts 14. They check back in to see how the disciples there are doing. See, he wasn't content to build on another man's foundation. He was the facilities manager. It was his job to keep the foundation stable, but he wanted to lay fresh foundation himself. He wanted to go somewhere where he could be the first person that anyone had heard name the name of Christ. So where are those among us who have such an ambition? And for those of us who don't, Paul simply says, can you help? Can you do something that would be of help? See, nothing that we do that's radical or crazy or extraordinary for God is enough to appease him, to earn our salvation, to earn his favor. That's not what this is. God doesn't need you to prove anything to him or to yourself or to Jason or anyone else in this church. Don't act merely out of guilt, like ripping a Band-Aid off. But because of the grace in which we stand, we should know that we're obligated. We have a mission. We should have an ambition. We should be discontent 
to just be duplicating each other's efforts forever. And because of that, we need to take action, whether to go or simply to help. Because this is a mission for all of us. Christ is securing the obedience of the nations for the sake of his name, through his church's mission, and through his servant's ambition. So Father, we pray that you would conform our lives to what we've seen in this text here whether we are those who would be called to go out in an extraordinary way like the Apostle Paul, or whether you simply want us to do more, to help a bit more. Let us, like Paul, though, not, not boast in ourselves, not boast in certainly what others have done. Let us boast in what Christ has done through us. It's not us, but it's Christ in us accomplishing your work and your will. May you receive all of the glory in our lives. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.